Today on the pod, we have Professor Aiko Kano from the University of Pennsylvania. She is professor of Japanese literature, uh, working specifically in the Performance and Gender Studies program. Professor Kano received her BA from Keio University and then an MA and PhD from Cornell University. Uh, her research focuses on the intersection of gender performance and politics, as well as Japanese cultural history from the 19th century to the present. Her most recent book, tracked the various feminist debates from the 1890s to the present, and we're happy to have her on today. So, Professor Kano, uh, could you tell us how exactly you got into the study of gender and the study of Japan, uh, you know, years ago? I went to undergraduate at Keio University in Japan, and this was in the 1980s. And at the moment when it was fairly clear that women, female students and male students were behaving differently and also treated differently. So, you know, discrimination and difference uh, by gender was very visible to me. So that led me to think uh, and search for, you know, where are the women in the field uh, that I was studying? I did my undergraduate major in English, in English literature. So I started looking in English literature and then also uh, in Japanese literature. So that's, that's how it really started for me, you know, seeing differences in behavior, in norms, in treatment of individuals by gender and then asking well where does this where does this come from and and what does this mean so could you give us a quick example of i guess the behavior mm. or or the discrimination either one would be fine sure. just to put a little granularity on yeah. that yeah so for example this is the era when most of the girls were wearing skirts or dresses and high-heeled shoes and stockings and makeup mm-hmm. and there was an expectation that uh, this being Keio University which is one of the highest ranking private universities in Japan that the male students, once they graduated, were pretty much assured a position in a company and probably lifetime employment, etc. Whereas mm-hmm. women weren't. This was, you know, just around the time when the Equal Employment Opportunity Law was passed. So, you know, very very early days of even thinking that there's a possibility for women to have careers. So that's that's sort of the situation when I was an mm-hmm. undergraduate. So this is the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Act of 85, correct? That is correct, yeah. Yeah, so um, there was a lot of problems with that law, especially in terms of enforcement. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. The The main problem of that law and, and subsequent laws is that there have been no penalties. So companies are encouraged to follow the guidelines to employ women uh, equally, to promote them, etc. But in reality, there's what has uh, happened is that there's a dual track of employment Mm -hmm. and that most women uh, were employed in so-called clerical tracks, most men in the career tracks, and so the gendering has has continued in that kind of a way. More recently, there have been further developments, but uh, that that was the, the main problem of the 1985 law. Thank you for that. I guess the um, the next most obvious question in terms of uh, what this segment is trying to accomplish for our listeners mm-hmm. is to help them make sense of, you know, 
gender is this big buzzword, intersectionality, and all these other different related words related to identity are, are hot topics now. So I think probably we should just start with a fairly simple question, which is what is gender and what does it mean to study it? Yeah, uh, big question indeed. Yeah. Um, so I'm the, the annoying person who after every lecture at every panel at every conference you know if gender hasn't been addressed i'm the one who raises the hand and says uh what about gender okay. <laughs> and so you know my my starting point is that it's an important huge category probably the largest category i'd, I'd venture to say for human experience and you know especially especially in a highly gendered society like modern Japan, where the experience, you know, if you're gendered female, your life experience would have been very different from uh, those gendered male. And that's, that's changing in certain areas uh, and changing in you know, certain parts of the world. But um, for much of the modern period in most of the world, it's been the case that uh, male versus female gender has been a, a huge definer of human experience. And the difference between gender and the other you know, intersectional categories, I would say, is that although, you know, obviously they're, they're uh, in between and crossing from one to the other, for the most part, they're fairly clearly defined categories. If you think of race and class, ethnicity, religion, and so on, it's, uh, it's a more complex, set of categories, whereas yeah. male versus female, it's, it's the, the most basic binary category of, of human experience. And the other sort of characteristic of it is that people of the opposite gender very often live together in, in, in very close proximity, right? In families, sure. in couples. Sure, sure. Um, exceptions, of course, exist, but uh, you know, parent and child and so on. So there's a gender dynamic uh, as part of almost all human communities, again, with a few exceptions. But most human communities have gender dynamics uh, within them. So that makes it hugely important. For scholars of gender, what are... Like, if you were to engage mm. some another scholar of gender in a debate, so assuming you both agree on what our working definitions and categories are, what are some big contentious points in, I guess, the history of gender in Japan or gendered histories of Japan that have had staying power or mm. have flared up more recently? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think staying power, uh, the question of really how best to assure um, autonomy for women is, is one of them. How to make sure that women have some kind of uh, security and independence. So, for example, historically in the early 20th century, there were debates about, you know, should the government uh, offer support for women who are uh, doing, you know, childbearing and childcaring, uh, support for mothers, essentially. Sure. Is that the best way, or is it better to encourage all women to find, you know, economic security through employment? The government uh, you know, policies about uh, taxation, insurance, pension—all of those come into into play. And I think this is an area on which there is just perennial 
disagreement and, and debate, very concrete kinds of debate. More recently, there's been a lot of sort of a refocusing of gender studies to try to account for the other side of the binary to talk about men as well. Mm. Sort of rewrite the meta meta narratives that we have with the actual eye towards gender. What have you found most interesting or useful about that kind of turn in, I guess, scholarly debates? Sure. So I've been teaching this course called Gender and Sexuality in Japan since mm, basically since I got to Penn. Uh, I started teaching here in 1995. So. It's it's been for me, you know, a matter of interest from the beginning. I didn't title it, you know, women in Japan or feminism in Japan. I called it gender and sexuality in Japan, and of course, they're intertwined categories. So for me, what's what's interesting is changing definitions of masculinity. I'll give you an example. One of the, the things that has happened in the 20th century and in the latter half of the 20th century and the 21st century is that the ideal of the male breadwinner in the family yeah. has been uh, severely you know, challenged. It's crumbling. And so what can society do? What does the government do as a policy and what does society do uh, in response to that, right? Does it try to shore up the male breadwinner, uh, trying to support the men, or does it try to respond to this new reality where both men and women are in more uh, precarious positions uh, in terms of the labor labor force and so on? So to me, that that is one of the areas where especially young people are impacted by this mm-hmm. and uh, where ideology and, and reality often, you know, they come they come to conflict. Do you think that there's a that sort of problems for Japanese women has sort of played out differently or is fundamentally different than, say, how an American woman would experience those same kinds of issues? There are probably uh, similarities, uh, universal experiences as well as as differences. You know, sometimes when I um, try to talk about this, I use the example of as a woman, if I were you know living in Japan, I would probably have much more support as a mother because the expectation is that all women are potential mothers. And so if you do become a mother uh, and, and you, you are expected to be married when you're a mother also, uh, so if you if you marry and become a mother, then there's a lot of support for you. For instance, uh, a year or more of partially paid childcare leave, very high quality uh, daycare centers, you know, heavily, heavily subsidized by the government. So very affordable, sure, cheap um, healthcare for the children and, and so on and so forth. You know, in, in comparison with that, what it feels like in the U.S. is that, yeah, you can have children, but you do that on your own, on your own time, and your own um, with your own funds. That's how it feels like. Sure. Right there, there are of course support mechanisms, but they're they're much more um, widely accessible in Japan compared to the U.S. Mm. So what this means is that the Japanese system is geared for women to become mothers. There's not an expectation that women become equal um, equal workers, for lack of a better word for the moment. Sure. Um, 
Whereas in the U.S., there is much more of an expectation of the latter, whereas uh, motherhood is, you know, it's a private matter. And the state is, has sort of withdrawn from trying to, um, to do too much support in that area. Right. What sorts of issues of Japanese women debated that maybe weren't such a big deal for women elsewhere? Hmm. Oh, so many things come to mind. Okay, so here here is mm-hmm. one that I found interesting and and provoking. There are feminists who have argued that being a housewife is the most liberated option, liberating and liberated option for mm-hmm. women that it is about caring for the family, caring for one's neighbors, caring for the elderly, the sick, the young. And that is a, um, you know, from, from a traditional liberal feminist viewpoint, sort of US model feminism, that seems very conservative. But these were some of the most sort of left-leaning people making that argument. And I think there's something in there about the importance of care work that is, on the one hand, it's unpaid labor, but on the other hand, it somebody needs to do it. Mm. You know, if, if, if somebody doesn't care for a newborn, uh, the baby will die, right? Sure. If somebody doesn't care for a sick person, the person will die. So there, there needs to be care work. And so how to, how to distribute that? So thinking from, from that kind of perspective, how does society divide up the care work and how do you care for the caregiver? That's been the kind of discussion that, you know, it exists elsewhere as well, but I think in Japan has been sort of throughout the history of feminism from from late 19th century has been running through a lot of the debates. Mm. And I think that's that's really interesting and, and important. Mm. Wonderful. So I guess to continue down this thread a little bit and think a little bit about what Prime Minister Abe has been trying to do, do you think that there is a feminist or a gender politics inherent to the current administration's drive towards things like premium Friday or trying to reducing labor times, other you know, trying to encourage birth rates mm-hmm. since we've got this pair of of, uh, of gender and labor together on the table? Mm-hmm. Do you, do, how do you how do you think about the current administration on these lines? Sure. So I've just published an article uh, on womenomics. Uh, that's Prime Minister Abe's policy. Womenomics and acrobatics is the title of it. And it explains why feminists, many feminists in Japan have been skeptical about the government's gender-related policies. And there's a you know, longer history to this. Prime Minister Abe was on the forefront of a backlash, a conservative backlash against feminism uh, early on in, in, his, um, in his tenure. So about 10 years ago, he was very strongly against uh, feminist ideas. So this uh, this new policy um, of womenomics is encouraging women to go into the labor force, is trying to give incentives to companies to hire more women, promote more women. At one point, uh, they were proposing the ideal of 30% of women 
in management and leadership positions in uh, both political leadership and economic leadership positions by the year 2020 for the Olympics. It's been um, it's been tough going, and I think they've had to cut back on that goal. For instance, uh, there's just a lot of uh, resistance of various kinds. I think that particular goal was promising. You know, I, I thought if actually 30% of leadership positions were held by women, that could be you know that could be a game changer. Um, better than you know, ten percent or five percent or whatever the um, the current number is in various sectors. Premium Friday, so the idea of cutting down on um, overwork in order to allow for better work-life balance. Again, you know, the I, the ideas yeah. are good, um, but just a lot of resistance. I think the reality is that. Um, everybody is is sort of overworked, both men and women, and it's it's hard to just cut back and to do that from top down. I think was a an unrealistic kind of an idea. Yeah. So, do you think that this was sort of an actual conservative, like an attempt at conservative feminism, if we can even call mm. that? Maybe I should actually mm-hmm. ask you this first. Do you think that conservative feminism is an oxymoron? Do you think that it, it has it's a real thing that should be taken seriously? How how would you define conservative feminism? <laughs> okay, I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting. It's a very interesting idea. Yeah. I you know I'm I would like to think about it. Um, and I'm sure there's a, a debate between sort of reasonable people that can be had about it. I think what I would call womenomics and sort of Abe's policy, I feel like they're trying to put together conservative and neoliberal, neoconservative and neoliberal ideas. Um, and so the neoconservative would be trying to go back to this idea of, of the male breadwinner, trying to shore it up, trying to protect it. Men should still be the, the focus of attention for, um, for protection of labor and so on. Whereas the neoliberal idea says it's all up to the individual you know, um, strong entrepreneurial uh, free individuals can choose their own destiny. And I think there's a a tension between those two. Mm. I'm reluctant to call the the neoliberal position equal to feminism. You know, I think there is such a thing as neoliberal feminism. Okay. And I think there is a tension uh, within feminism, about how to um, how to deal with neoliberal ideas, you know, this whole idea of it's it's up to the individual and the stronger individual wins. That's a hard hard thing for feminism to accept wholesale, but it's also a hard thing to reject wholesale either. Right. So then, I, I think what you're saying is that mm. the way that things are going right now. The, t- that tension is not being resolved properly. Um, do you think it's possible? Like, can could you could conservative and progressive feminists get on board? Like, if we say that there are neoliberal feminists, can they get with a, prog- mm-hmm. a what, I don't know whatever we want to call progressives? Like, are there commonalities that are just so obvious mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's kind of odd mm-hmm. that they're being ignored? In your view, 
Sure. I think, you know, safety nets, safety nets for individuals of, of any gender who fall off the, um, the neoliberal system, I think is, is something that most people could agree on. For example, you know, support for, for children, support for uh, single parents, whether they're, you know, became single uh. because of uh, being widowed or divorced or you know, never married. That is where currently the system is, has a, just a huge gaping hole. And, you know, both for single uh, parents and their children are not receiving the kind of um, you know, support, welfare support that I mentioned a few minutes ago about you know, support for mothers. Single mothers are not getting the support that they need. And I think that's something on which most um, most people could agree on. So then for so, for example, we could ha- we could you could imagine somebody saying, you know, while we don't necessarily have to agree on what the ideal family unit is, we can all agree that mm. child care is a prima facie issue no matter what your family organization is. Correct. Right. Correct. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you think um, do you think there's a fundamental difference between, say, how Abe's mm-hmm. administrations or maybe Japanese politicians or activists approach to these questions? That's is there something fundamentally different about how they're going at, say, that overlap than other other groups in other countries mm. that you've seen before? Hmm. So I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a person who does comparative politics. But um, one thing that I've seen which strikes a chord is that in general, um, sort of top-down policies have worked rather well in post-war Japan, and maybe pre-war Japan as well. And so, for example, around the year 2000, there was a huge uh, project to pass a basic law for gender equality, very much top down, you know, from the government mm-hmm. to the municipalities to um, to every every city and, and town was supposed to have a gender equality office, etc., and pass its own ordinance uh, and promote gender equality. That, I think, is... Um, I won't say it's unique to Japan, but it's it's something that people have, um, scholars have pointed out, uh, seems to work to a certain extent, that kind of top-down directive. There's also been, you know, of course, backlash against it from, from grassroots conservatives. But uh, if I were to say, you know, that, that seems a bit unusual, um, for example, if, if you compare it especially with the U.S., where it's such a you know generally a decentralized uh, state by state kind of policy making, um, to me that stands out as a quality of the Japanese political scene. So, do you think that there's a bit of a generational divide in mm-hmm. terms of um, either how scholars have approached these kinds of problems, or I guess how the a- or the activism? has developed because there's that global 1960s moment Mm. that's its own Mm. can of worms then you have Mm -hmm. something very different in the 80s and i guess the birth of the neoliberalism something else now yeah i'm sure i'm sure there is a a generational divide um so i as i said i was a, a student in the 1980s when 
it was not cool to be into politics, right? Mm. Um, it's the so-called shirake sedai when everybody was too cool to be too interested. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's a very different moment now. Yeah. And whenever I, whenever I talk about anything, um, my students rightly point out, you know, we are we are in the twenty first century. You know, what about the internet? What about this? What about that? And and that's that's very true. Um, so how does the internet affect feminism? How does it affect politics? All of that, you know, I think those are really interesting and and sort of emerging areas of of scholarship. So I guess to just to stick on this thread for one one more second, do you think mm. that when you see your students asking those kinds of questions or scholars mm-hmm. raising those kinds of questions, if we think about Me Too for a second, mm-hmm. something that's been a little strange to me as I've the, as I've seen headlines come out um, from the Asahi and from uh, Japan Times, mm-hmm. which is an English language mm-hmm. newspaper for the listeners, right. there seemed to be a bit of an expectation that Me Too would transfer almost seamlessly into Japan. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? Why? Why wouldn't it? I I'm not sure why it wouldn't. It is still a highly gendered society, but that doesn't mean that objectionable behavior shouldn't be called out. It feels weird that it's happening why? right now. The Me Too, yeah. I mean, weird in the sense that <clears throat> it feels very. How shall I put this? Mm-hmm. You know, the word, for example, sekuhara, sexual harassment, uh, entered into the Japanese vocabulary, I, I believe, in the 1980s also. And that sort of made sense in that that's the moment there's the Equal Employment Opportunity Law, more women are entering into corporations and climbing the corporate ladder and so on. So there is more of an expectation that they should be treated with dignity and respect and so on. And so my my surprise in a way about the Me Too is that, yeah, here we are, how many years since then? Three decades yeah. since then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's becoming an issue now. It's surprising how, how long it took and how late it is. So in the 1980s, it seemed like there was a lot of overt questioning about what a proper family model ought look like. Does dad even actually need to be around? Can mm-hmm. he just go off into the ether and disappear to somewhere else in the world and work? Or, you know, it, should they we be more like Reagan, etc.? So mm-hmm. was that sort of fundamental in your mind to what exactly was going on with what we'll call the the first Me Too in Japan? If I understood your question correctly, then so there is a a breakdown or there's a questioning of the traditional family yes. Yes. model in the 1980s, yes. right? Yeah, and I think in many ways that was perceived as a progressive thing, mm-hmm. right? Who needs parents, right? Who needs grandparents? The 1980s, the, the upside of that is that there was a real insistence on individuals sort of finding themselves and following, you know, following your dream and so on. But I think the difficulty that arose is it's hard to live on one's own when you're, when you grow older, when you grow sick, when you find yourself in whatever vulnerable position. It's easier to live 
as clusters, sure. maybe, right, or communities. And that's when I think what Japan has managed to do in the 1990s and what I see now is that it has become much more acceptable to be, to remain single, to be a ohitori-sama, as they say, an honorable mm. single person. But it has created its own problems, sure. right? Problems of loneliness and, you know, what do you do when you find yourself, you know, later on in life wanting companionship? And the it's the expectation is still that you get married earlier and have a family. Uh, I think it's it's harder for people to find that later on in life. There's a lot that's being made, uh, especially in contemporary politics, in terms of you know gender and labor issues as separate categories. But certainly, in a lot of your answers, I think you've made quite obvious that that's a bit of a misnomer. To separate them mm-hmm. is, a, is quite artificial. What do you think the relationship abstractly between gender and labor actually is? You gave a brief answer earlier, but I guess I'll ask for a teeny bit more detail. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting that you ask that. One of the chapters in my book on, on Japanese feminist debates, I ended up calling a chapter on, on labor but labor in the sense that includes, you know, motherhood as labor, you know, sure. giving birth, raising children, employment outside of the home, work inside of the home, paid and unpaid, all of those things. And one way to understand the great economic boom of Japan in the post-war period and what made it possible, you could say is the unpaid labor of women in the families. You know, for child care and for yeah. elder care. So that's that's one of the ways in which I think of gender and labor combined. Mm. So I guess mm. in case there's a listener who's still on the fence here, why, I, I'll ask mm. this question. Why is motherhood labor? Why is motherhood labor? Mm. Yeah, because mm. I, I believe you. But yeah, um, so I can imagine that the argument against it is that, well, it's it's what you do because you love your children. Why wouldn't you want to do it, right? So it's mm-hmm. a labor sure. of love and therefore difficult to, to put a price on it. It's something that is not supposed to be, you know, compensated. We're not supposed to count it in, in, in sort of yen and dollar terms. And yet it is what is, makes it difficult for women to have full-time careers, what makes it difficult for women to go into politics, to be, you know, doctors, lawyers, uh, politicians, professors, anything, right? And so, yeah. or artists or activists. So there is a an opportunity cost, if you will. And if mm-hmm. the expectation is that as a mother, if you have children, you you devote your time, your energy, your talents to that. Children will benefit from that, I think. And I think society, mm-hmm. arguably society as a whole, will also benefit from it. But if if those expectations are so high, they're locked in place. So in my book, I use the example of these very elaborate uh, school lunches, right, that are, mm-hmm. you have ham and, and eggs cut in the shape of Pokemon and, and so on. If that is the expectation, that makes it hard for women to do other things when they have children. Right. I guess my next question, jumping off that, is to think a little bit about the presumption that 
that sort of labor must necessarily be done by women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why can't dad make the Pokemon out of ham? Mm. Yeah, they they can and some do. And I say that's great uh, if you have the time. But if the expectation is that the dad is the main breadwinner and the expectation in the workplace is that dad stays until 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night to get the work done, then it's very difficult for dad to do that. So I think that, you know, going back to the womenomics and uh, Abe's policies, there is, I think, an effort to try to change that, to allow more men to be involved in childcare, housework, family life. But to do that, you know, really the expectations of the workplace have to change as well. You know, what you expect from workers as well as from moms and dads. So there's a a similar expectation of very detailed and intense work in two different spheres is being expected of both parents. Correct. Correct. And that it just kind of pulls them into two different spaces, but for similar kinds of reasons. Yeah, yeah. And I I often say everyone has just high, the norms are too high. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone needs to be a bit more... um, you know, the, the Japanese word is, is ikagen, mm. a bit more relaxed, a bit more chill. <laughs> and that, that go a long way. But, you know, I think that hasn't, as far as I can see, it hasn't happened. Very, very uh, concretely, I, I see a little sign of hope in that there's been some things in the news about, you know, expectations for dinner. Mm. When you expect it to make very fancy dinners, that's hard to combine with full-time work. But if you can have, you know, a simple meal with rice and miso soup and maybe one, you know, one dish or maybe, you know, miso soup with lots of vegetables and tofu can be the main dish. Yeah. I think that's a that's a huge that's a cultural change. um, But maybe that needs to happen at some level. Yeah, I definitely know. I've had friends talk to me about how they always eat. They call it sarada chicken. The uh, Mm, for the listeners, it's basically a boiled chicken breast or a braised chicken breast and shrink wrapped in a convenience store. And they just eat that with rice so that they get protein. Yeah. So you can't get simpler than that, really. (laughs) You can't. But but you know what? As a as a mom, would I confess to serving that to my kids? I really, you know, I really feel like there's a stigma about using foods that are convenient, that are frozen or, you know, microwavable. The lunches should be prepared from scratch, the dinners prepared from scratch and so on. Mm. So that norm, I think, does need to does need yeah. to change. So I guess just to stay on this thread a little bit, what has been the role of not powerful men in mm. grappling with these kinds of issues? It's interesting you say not yeah. powerful men. So, I you know one one could take that in in many directions. But one of the arguments that I see is under womenomics, for example, or under uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Law, that the women are taking jobs away from the men. But I don't really see that happening. There has been a structural shift to more irregular forms of labor. So these might be you know, full-time, but without job security, without a lot of the additional benefits and so on. And that, that has happened sort of across the board for men and women 
more for women, but also, you know, substantially for, for men and younger men, especially. So there's been a, a growth of a demographic group of men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who I think one, one could be called uh, are not powerful men in that sense. They don't have the, um, the breadwinner positions. They don't have job security. And I would imagine, you know, this is the equivalent of the base for Trump. They could be the yeah. base for Abe. I don't know that for certain, but the sort of ideological underpinning for arguing that we need to go back to a stronger male breadwinner model, I can see that appealing to, to that group, right? So that's, that's the more conservative uh, kind of an argument. I can also see, you know, although you know, evidence has been for me more anecdotal than anything, for younger men, you know, if, if you are in that position, why not, you know, be in a relationship with women who have more economic clout? Um, and I think I see, mm. like I said, you know, episodically or anecdotally some examples of that. But I think that's where maybe cultural and, and sort of historical norms of masculinity and femininity still come into play and you know, are resistant to that a little bit. <laughs> Just as I finished saying that, I could hear some of my students saying, oh, Professor Kano, you're being so heteronormative. So that, that is a, a fault of, of many of my answers. I am being heteronormative in, in the way I think about this. So then why don't we unpack that a little bit? When someone talks, when someone says heteronormativity, what does that mean? What sorts of topics are they actually reading mm -hmm. and learning about? When somebody says that's heteronormative, that means, for example, when, when I was describing, uh, you know, less powerful men should consider becoming couples with more powerful women, etc. That's assuming that that kind of coupling between men and women are the most natural, the most expected, uh, the most normative um, kind of a family. And that's that's a problem in on many levels. I think you know when when I tend to make that kind of a, a an argument in very crude terms, it's responding to the fact that society, you know, speaking about modern Japanese society, is pretty much set up that way, mm -hmm. right? And, but it's not assuming that it ought to stay that way, if that makes it sense. It does to me. Yeah. So, for example, yeah, mar marriage in Japan is defined as man and woman, and there are um, there are moves to change that, but it hasn't changed. So, same-sex marriage, for example, is not uh, legal in Japan. I thought that gay marriage had become legal in Shibuya and Shinjuku. Did that change? Well, legal. What do we mean by legal? They'll they'll issue you a certificate. Okay. And that might mean something in some situations, uh -huh. but <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's symbolically very important. But um, beyond that, I uh, don't think it has a whole lot of, of um, practical implications. Mm, okay. I could be wrong about no, this. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't could be sure. Wrong about this, but I, um, yeah, mm -hmm. I just the only thing I'd heard is that Shinjuku and Shibuya had passed something looking like gay marriage, and I had no details on it. So that was a bit of a selfish question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess, and you've been touching on on this issue throughout your answers, 
but I'll ask that explicitly. Why is gender a particularly useful thing for scholars to be working on right now, considering what's going on in Japan? I think it's always been important. And so I, I don't want to say it's particularly important now. It's been important. It will, um, I, I can imagine a time when it won't be important, but that time seems like it's pretty far away. Right now, we, uh, both Japan and the US are led by individuals who have very conflicted, let's say, ideas about gender. And the policies in both countries are also full of contradictions. So it's, a, it's an interesting time, let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Interesting, troubling, but also a very exciting time in that there are, also, uh, there are young people who are mobilizing to seek gender justice. And I think that's why it's important. So I guess, could you give an example of that mobilizing you just mentioned? For that, I'm thinking more on on the U.S. side. Yeah, you mentioned the Me Too movement, uh, Women's March, um, all of that. Like I said, I've been teaching this course for 20 years now. And I think around 2016, 2017, for the first time when I asked in the class, you know, are you a feminist? Until then, most most students would say, no, I'm not a feminist, but I believe in equality. Or I'm not a feminist, but I believe in sexual freedom, etc. But for the first time, majority, more than majority, overwhelming majority of students raised their hand and say, I'm a feminist. So that's, that's an interesting moment. Yeah, it's a very exciting moment. I don't know if the same thing is happening in Japan. I'd like to think it is. But if it is happening, then it has something to do also with, you know, with all the contradictions that are going on and the difficulty for both young women and young men to to see a good way forward given the the contradictions in in policy do you have a sense of why you think your students change their minds i mean there's some there's some you know i know there's an elephant in the room but do you think it's it's not that Mm, elephant yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it is that elephant trump versus hillary okay yeah that that was what galvanized a lot of students. Mm. Yeah. So I guess my final question, do you see a role for scholarship right now in the current politics around gender? Or do you think this is sort of, we should continue on with what we're doing? And if it's useful for the here and now, then great. What a great question. When, when I was working on, on the book, the Japanese Feminist Debates book, when I was working on it, I felt very strongly, and at, at some level I still believe, that it's really important to highlight the fact that women in Japan have had a lively feminist movement and a lively debate, and that these differences of opinion matter. and that paying attention to them is is really crucial. Debates are interesting to me. You know, they're they're both intellectual, but also they are political. And I I like to believe that uh, the pursuit of 
of deeper understanding, deeper knowledge about divisive issues is a force for good. Since about November 2016, it's been a little bit harder to believe that, mm -hmm. but I, I will choose to continue to believe that. Knowledge is good, debate is good, expertise is important, a reasoned discussion is a force for good. Let's leave it at that. Great. Professor, thank okay. you so much for this wonderful uh, conversation on a whole litany of issues related to gender and gender politics. This podcast is being released on a Thursday, and it is the first on our new segment on gender politics. The next episode from a grad student working in this area will be released in two weeks, also on Thursday. You can check out some sources related to today's topics at our website, transasiapod.wordpress.com, or you can find us on Twitter at TransasiaPod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day.